0: seems to be a pretty common question when you consider the progression of Christmas. If you're here this morning and you think on it long enough, maybe you can identify with how I identify with Christmas, at least as a kid. For us, Christmas always started on Thanksgiving Day. That was when the flag was dropped. That's when Delilah would no longer be on the air because it was all Christmas music all the time for the whole month. On Thanksgiving Day is when my mom and all the women in our family would get together around the dinner table, and after we all ate together, they would put together names in a hat, and we would draw names out of a hat. As the oldest of six, it made sense instead of having to buy for everybody, so we would pick out names, and all the kids would gather around on the carpet while the dads would fall asleep watching football in their comatose state from too much tryptophan. And the children, now you might be old enough to remember uh, catalogs. You would receive catalogs in the mail, J.C. Penney and Sears and Roebuck's catalogs where you would circle and highlight what you wanted for Christmas and you would put it in numerical order of importance for you. And not like today when my two-year-old will send me a link to Amazon and say, Dad... I've taken the guesswork out of it for you. Just click on the button. I've already added it. I've taken the liberty of adding it to the cart. All you need to do is put in your payment information and overnight it, and it will be here. So the children would go together, and they would draw out for themselves what they hoped they would receive for Christmas. While this is going on, all the ladies are gathered around the table and they're talking about what they're going to do for Christmas, how many family photo sessions we're going to have to sit through, how many parties we're going to plan and need to attend, who's going to bring what food to what event, who's going to buy what so that a present isn't duplicated. There's a whole planning process where calendars are compared and contrasted. And then that night begins the caffeine binge, because inevitably the next morning by 3 a.m., and that's conservative, you've got to roll out of the house and head to the stores for your Black Friday specials, just in time to prepare for your Cyber Monday deals. Then begins the progression of Christmas. All the things that you've worked hard to plan for begin to take shape and and begin to, to take effect. And so you run through the holiday season and all the parties are going on and all the food is being eaten and all the presents are being purchased and the whole progress of Christmas is in full effect. Then you come to Christmas Eve. And if you're a part of my family or in my house, you know that Santa is gonna show up and is gonna give you pajamas because that's what Santa does. Gives you just enough but doesn't uh, wanna give, your parents don't wanna give credit for everything that they did, all the work that they did. And so Santa gives you the pajamas the night before. Christmas morning wakes up and Being a father of six as well, my kids generally sleep in the same room, and for some reason I can't wake them for school, but on Christmas Day, getting up at 5 a.m. is no problem at all. (laughs) They wake up, and you have to deadbolt their door from the outside in and put up sheets. And the reason, guys, is because we didn't put enough forethought into building the presents before Christmas Eve. So we've been up all night putting together the toys that our wives have been after us about putting together for the weeks before, but we've always somehow put it off. And then there's the rapping. When the door opens up, it's like the greyhound race. The dogs are in full effect. They're just sprinting the stairs and they're taking the corners at speeds that you did not know were possible in two-year-olds. There they gather around the tree and if you're a good parent, you make them wait. I mean, you make them wait a long time and you, you read the Christmas story and you focus on what Christmas is all about. And in my house growing up, one of us would always end up playing Santa Claus where you would take and you would disseminate the Christmas presents based on the name on the tag. But you would always start by age, which made incredible sense sometimes where the youngest ones would just rip into the presents and play with the box and leave the toy over there. But maybe you're like my mom. Maybe you're like my mom who's likely watching right now and is going to text me in the middle of this message as she so often does. Maybe you're like my mom in that you think in the back of your mind, that you want to be a good steward of the gifts that you've been given, and so you take a plastic butter knife, and you gently cut into the tape, the scotch tape, you, you cut into it, and you begin to unwrap the present in the same manner that it was wrapped, and you save the wrapping paper. Oh, what's the point? Like, that makes that makes zero. Where's the fun in that? I I don't, it takes way too long, you're never, it's just, there's a pile of wrapping paper that by the time, anyway, that's a whole nother story for a whole nother message. But maybe your living room looks something like what my living room looks like, which is somewhat depicted here on the stage today. What you're left with is remnants of the Christmas holiday. Empty boxes and toys that you don't see are there because the wrapping paper is over them. And so when you step on paper, you end up almost killing yourself on the plastic. And the kids are already on to the next thing. And you, you look at this the day after Christmas, and all the, the work that went into making the meals has now become one great big casserole. All the food has been collected, and what I learned when I first went to Minnesota is that as long as it has tater tots and cheese, you can put anything in it. <laughs> and so you live on leftovers for seemingly weeks on end, going over everything that you've eaten, and you look around, and maybe you beg the question that I beg, which is, now what? And that's the question that I want to address together today, this morning, in our few minutes together, is, now What? We started this journey, this series entitled This Christmas five weeks ago with the intention of looking at Christmas a little bit different. We run the risk of being swept up in motions that we go through year after year if we're not intentional to think about what it is we're doing. And so this series was designed and set up to cause us to reflect on traditions that we might otherwise miss and to put some more thought and intentional effort into why we do what we do. In week one, we looked at a message that I entitled, Because Lights Matter. We talked about the importance of lights and how Stacy, for us and our family, wanted lights up this year. And she went to great lengths to ensure uh, that I would do them. And we talked about how when you put lights on or you drive around and look at lights, that we should look at the, and we looked at the message in, in Matthew, Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, when he says, look, you're a, you're a light, like a city on a hill. Nobody lights that to put it under their bed or to cover it up, but it's used, and the Greek word there is is the same word that we get photographed from. It's used to capture the true image of Christ. That as a light bearer, as an image bearer, we're responsible for capturing the true image of Christ in how we live our lives. And so I challenged us that every time we saw lights this Christmas or turned our lights on, that we would remember what it means to be the light of the world. In week two, We gave a message entitled, Prepared to Give. We talked about the premise that Every year, it seems that we, uh, we budget for getting the perfect gift, and we search out the best place to buy the perfect gift. We compare and contrast prices and locations, and we research, and we'll be intentional about listening to what people want, all in search of the perfect gift, and then we get that perfect gift, and we'll wrap it, and we have these intentions or the expectations that come with giving the perfect gift, and I challenged us to think about what it would look like if we were prepared to give to God. And there were four specific ways that we are called to be prepared to give to God. The third week, my friend Chris Harrison flew in from Houston, Texas. And he gave us a message entitled, Christmas Has a Name. And that name is Jesus. And his challenge to us was to really rethink the word Christmas or the name Christmas and what it means to us, the grace that comes along with God's gift to mankind, the incarnation of God In human flesh. Then last week, on Christmas Eve, the message title was Christmas is Ruined. And if you were here, you'll remember that I I talked about how my eight-year-old daughter, Ryan, was doing her level best to take the ornaments that my two-year-old, Brianne, kept getting into and would hang them higher and higher on the Christmas tree to the point where she accidentally hung one too high, leaning over the tree too far, grabbed the branch and pulled the entire Christmas tree over on herself. This 10-foot Christmas tree, the base of it, the water, the green piney water spilled out all over our carpets, the glass ornate ornaments were broken, the the tree was disheveled, and Stacy came out into a mess and said, and I quote, great, Christmas is ruined, to which my five-year-old M.J., she 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 internalized that and believed that I walked in the house and MJ met me at the door and said daddy christmas is ruined in her exasperated voice as she took me by the hand and walked me around the corner into the living room where the remnants of the tree was stacy did her best to clean up the mess she took our carpet cleaner and she soaked up all the water and cleaned the carpets and moved the tree into the corner and then did what you should do with a wet carpet like that and she put some heat over the area to warm it up, but it was in direct sight of the Christmas tree that was now dead when I got there. And so my responsibility was to take this dead Christmas tree and set it on the side of our house in preparation of the Boy Scouts of America picking it up this week. We talked about how maybe ruin, maybe Christmas being ruined is the best place that we could find ourselves this Christmas because it's in the middle of our ruin that we can experience the fullness of God's redemption in our lives. So often, if we don't recognize our ruin, or if we just get swept up in the motions of Christmas, we'll ignore our ruin. But when we accept the ruin that we have, that we're in the middle of our ruin, God can come in and redeem us. He meets us right where we're at in our ruin. Today, if you're taking notes and you want to follow along, I've entitled the message, Now What? We're going to look at what we do with Christmas post Christmas? What do we do when we've encountered God in human flesh through the Son, Jesus, that was given to us, that was promised to us? If you want to follow along, I'd encourage you to grab your Bibles right now and open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and if you don't have your Bible, I would encourage you to raise your hand, and one of our ushers would be glad to hand you a Bible, these Bibles are our gift to you, encourage you to bring them with you each and every week, as this is the foundation by which we do all that we do as a church. Luke chapter 2 is Luke's account of the Christmas story. This was made famous a few decades ago with the Charlie Brown Christmas tree and Linus is reciting when Charlie Brown walks in and says, doesn't anybody know the meaning of Christmas anymore? And Linus walks out with his blanket and recites what we're going to read today. As we read it, what I want to do is I want to spend just a few minutes kind of looking at the first part of the story, but we're really going to focus in together on verses 15 through 20, as we look to answer the question, now what, together. So as you're turning in your Bible to Luke chapter two, let's begin with a word of prayer and jump right in together today. Gracious Heavenly Father, I love you, and we thank you, and we celebrate you, and as we spend the last moments of 2017 together, I thank you for what you've done in our church, what you've done in so many lives that are represented here. God, you are worthy to be praised and You are magnificent. You are awesome. Thank you for this Christmas, for this series that we've been able to reflect on and look at and investigate and explore and consider. And I pray for our time together this morning. Lord, I pray that you would redeem it for your glory. I pray that as we read your word, that it would become active and alive in us. That you would compel us to action and draw us in by your grace and your love. And Lord, as we pray so often... May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, God. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to do something a little uncharacteristic, or I'm going to try to anyway. I'm going to read the first 14 verses in the narrative and kind of set the stage for us. And then we're going to read the last six verses together, and we're going to spend probably the majority of our time looking at verses 15 through 20. So if you'd like to follow along, I'm reading Luke chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. At that time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And Joseph, because he was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. And he took with him Mary, his fiance, who he was now, uh, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her to baby to be born, and she gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him in snugly, uh, she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night, there were shepherds staying in a field nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. When suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. I want to recap briefly what Luke points out to us. And if you compare Matthew's account or telling of Jesus' birth and Luke's, there are some similarities, but the contrast. Is significant, and I love how God uses both to paint a total picture for us. And so Luke points out that this during this time, Rome is 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 an empire. Rome is the largest, most powerful empire in the known world at that time, and they've moved from a governance of uh, that was controlled by a senate, where they had now voted Octavius into Octavian into leadership as as Caesar. Augustus, and under his authority, one of the first things that he does is he sets out to establish just how far-reaching his empire is. So by issuing a decree that would go out to all people, they are responsible to go back to the, 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 the origin of their families, and there a census is taken which will determine just how many people live in Rome at that time. The second part of this equation is the taxation that comes with knowing who lives where, and that's significant as Caesar Augustus begins to establish his empire in in Rome. Joseph and Marier are are part of this, and as is customary, as is what they have been asked to do, Joseph takes his very pregnant fiancé with him to the town in which his family origins lie, which is Bethlehem, about 80 to 100 miles from where they were at at the time. And it says that he traveled from the village and they came close and as he took him, in verse six, while they were there, the time came for Mary's baby to be born, for the incarnation to take place, for God to descend the heavenly staircase and step into the earthly living room in the form of human flesh becoming entirely man. In the form of a baby. She gives birth to Jesus and something that Luke points out that I think is significant for us to pay attention to is it says in the second part of verse 7, she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging for them. Two things that we need to point out. First is the, the lodging issue. As I look at this on the surface, I ask myself, well, if this is the origin of Joseph and he's got family in Bethlehem, how is it that there's no room for them? How is it that there's no lodging? And while we're not given an answer, we can assume that there was an adequate space for them in a bed and breakfast or an Airbnb or there weren't enough rooms. But it's more likely that they weren't prepared to offer a space in which a a child could be born. And so they go and, and if you look at Matthew's account, it talks about there's no room for them in the inn, or no lodging in a space. And so it seems then that there was a there was a, a residence there, a space that you and I might liken to a a, a hotel today, where you would go and you could stay uh, for a period of time in a community that wasn't necessarily your own, while you were passing through or while you were there. And as Mary and Joseph go into the inn, there's no lodging available for them, and so. We look at this according to culture and it's painted this picture of a stable, a wooden stable and hay and straw on the ground and this manger and nativity scene with the animals and Mary and Joseph and some of that, at least conceptually, is very accurate. but it's more likely that they went to the side of a, a, a cavern that had been carved out and it was dark and, and it would have been a place where the animals would have fed and where they would have bedded down. And So there, Mary and Joseph seem to do their best to make a, a, a place to stay. And she gives birth to Jesus and they construct a manger, a crib, if you will, a cradle, and they, they place Jesus in this. What I love is the detail that Luke gives about wrapping Jesus in cloth. It lets us know the kind of affection and love that Mary has for her child. Now you have to pardon my language, and I certainly don't mean to be uh, crass, but it would be understandable, at least to us conceptually, that it might be a little hard to care for what some might consider a bastard child. That this was God's Son, but for this young lady, this young woman, her reputation has been put on the line. Joseph's reputation has been put on the line. God has seemingly chosen the least of these. And now, this, this, this young girl has given birth to this child. Is it just her responsibility to, to care for him? Or what, what's her role in, in the equation of Jesus and God's economy? And as Jesus is concerned, what is her obligation? What is her role? Well, there's a storge kind of love in the original Greek language, which is an affectionate kind of love that a mother or a father would show to their child. And it denotes a lot of different things that go along with that kind of love. And the fact that Luke points out that Mary wrapped him in cloth, this is significant culturally because this is a sign, this is a telltale sign of an affectionate kind of love that a mother would have for her child. Which I love that Mary not only accepts the responsibility that God has given her, but that she genuinely shows love for God's son. That he chose her, and she chooses to care for and nurture and love Jesus. I also appreciate the detail that Luke offers, because it's going to be significant when we look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2, And you compare it to the detail that the angel of the Lord is going to give the shepherds here in a moment with what they find. The second thing, or I guess the third thing that I want to to point out here, is it says in verse 13, Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. This is perhaps the most significant hymn of our culture, of our day, of our time, or maybe ever. As I did a little bit of research, I realized that over two thousand different composers have built a song or a poetry around this hymn. It's had significant impact globally, and it begins very organically here when the angels will sing and celebrate. And we're going to come back to this and revisit it in a moment. But let's let's dive in together and let's study verse fifteen through verse twenty. So, when the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that had happened which the Lord has told us about. I love the response of the shepherds in this moment. It would have been easy for them to talk at nauseum to discuss and to debate the theology behind what just took place to think through together the significance and the importance for them. I mean, you think about it. What we need to know culturally about the shepherds in this case to help bring this picture full circle for us is the kind of reputation that the shepherds had, the kind of people that they would have been considered The shepherds were notorious for being ceremonially unclean. They had a job, a vocation, in which they were required to stay outside of the city limits and to care for flocks, to care for, in this case, sheep, day and night. They would have been skilled with their hands. They would have been skilled with hand-to-hand combat for a couple of different reasons. One, because they were responsible for protecting the, the flock from an enemy, somebody who might otherwise come in and try to steal The flock, And the other reason is because they would have been responsible for warding off any predators that would have come and seen these sheep as prey. They would have had to know hand-to-hand combat. We see this picture painted brilliantly when we think about King David, before he was king. When his father sends him to the battle lines as the Israelites are challenging the Philistines, and the Philistines are challenging the Israelites, and Goliath comes out every day and he calls out, David asks his brother. He says, "What's going on? Who is this? Who is this Philistine giant that he would defy the living God?" And when word gets back to Saul, he invites David into his inner tent, and he says, "Who are you? Where are you from? What are you about?" And David says, "Look, look, look! I will go on. I will fight on behalf of God. He will give uh, the, the 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 Philistines into our hand." And he says, "But you're just a kid." What are you capable of doing? And he points out, look, 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 I've been caring for my father's herd and I've, I've had to ward off all kinds of predators, including lions and others that would come in and try to, try to hurt him. And so he's a skilled marksman with these stones and with a sling. And now fast forward back to the story we're in, understand that these are, these are skilled individuals, But they also have a reputation by many as being a band of brothers similar to pirates in some cases. Uh, Many people would identify them as thieves. Many would misunderstand them or misrepresent them. Because of their vocations and working with animals and all that they were doing and being outside of the city, it wasn't often, if ever, they were allowed to come into the temple or, or had time to come into the temple to worship. So they were considered ceremonially unclean. There's a lot of reputation that preceded the shepherds. And so it's interesting to me, it's interesting to me that God shows up and in this story, contrary to Matthew's account where a couple of years after Jesus' birth, the magi, these individuals who are uh, on the social stratus are upper echelon, are compared to the day of Jesus' birth, these shepherds who are on the lower spectrum of The social scale. And it says that they weren't paying attention. They weren't looking into Jesus. We can assume that anyway because it says that when the angel of the Lord appeared, and he appears in a bright light, and this is often how God would reveal himself, uh, by a cloud or by fire or bright light, that the angels were terrified. That's the adjective used to describe their reception of the angel. Now, why would they be terrified? Can we assume that they're terrified because they weren't expecting it? Contrast that with the Magi who were intentionally looking for the prophecy to be fulfilled. They were looking for the Messiah. They, they were astrologers. They they recognized that when this star, this new star, stood out in the skies, that it was unique, that it was different. They were intentional to look for, where the shepherds were caught off guard. Here they were just doing their thing, living their lives, and the angel of the Lord appears and shows up, meets them right where they're at in the middle of their circumstances and draws their attention. And it says that they were terrified, but the Lord speaks to them through the angel. He says, don't be afraid. I want to read this part again. In verse ten, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news, and that word "good news" in verse ten is the same word root word that we get the word evangelism from—the gospel, the good news message that we are, are to share. This kind of message with others. The angel here is the one who is doing the sharing, and this is uh, uh, this is going to be a precursor for what they then are, are asked to share. He says, "Don't be afraid. I bring you good news." that will bring great joy to all people. Now maybe it's just me, but as I read this on the surface and I look at that word all, I ask myself why it is important to know that the Lord is sharing with the shepherds that this message is for all people. Notice God didn't choose to come to the social elite. Notice God didn't come to the kings and the great kingdoms. He didn't show up in pomp and circumstance. Instead, God shows up and reveals himself to the least of these. In some social settings, it was pretty common for shepherds to be thought of in the same vein as lepers. There's the haves and the have-nots. There's us and there's them. And so if you know much about lepers or the have-nots, then you realize that these are the least of these. These are not the most dynamic people. These are not the people with the greatest influence. Instead, these are the people that are marginalized. These are the people that are misrepresented. These are often the people that are mistreated and misplaced. And yet this is the, the group of people that God chooses to step into the middle of their lives Interrupt what they're doing and reveal the greatest message the world will ever know. The angel says, This message that I bring will bring great joy to all people, starting with you, the least of these, the marginalized, misrepresented, misplaced, and those who don't seem to have a place in society outside of your identity as a shepherd. Then he says in verse 11, And I wish that I had more time to spend on this. This is an entire series of messages the way that the Lord will describe Jesus. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. There's three different explanations of who Jesus is in this one passage. The Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. And then very Intentional detail given about the time and the location that Jesus is born to the shepherds as they're listening. And he says, and you will recognize him by this sign. Now this is a direct inference to Micah chapter 5 verse 2 if you want to cross-reference this. This prophecy that is now fulfilled. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Very detailed Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others in the armies of heaven, praising God, worshiping God, singing glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. I love that they don't get into some theological discussions or arguments about what this could mean. They don't sit there and try to extrapolate and pull things out of this or make it more than what it was intended to be. I love that they don't say, now what did you hear? Because this is what I heard and begin to argue the next steps. Last year I did something that is unique to to me. I, I bought a Bible that was completely blank and I decided to read it from different lenses. It's hard for someone who as some schooling in theology and in doctrine and in studying the Bible to read the Bible, oftentimes without trying to interpret it and to make it mean something and to read into it and go to the original Greek and the Hebrew and look for the ties and the cross-references and the parallels, and it's difficult. So what I committed to doing uh, was reading the Bible at face value, and I bought a packet of colored pencils. And anytime something stood out to me that was unique, I would highlight it and I would make a notation. One color in particular in the pack of pencils that I used was the color brown. And starting in Genesis, every time I saw God speak and the individual that he spoke to or individuals, in many cases the Israelites, being obedient to what God called them to do, I would highlight that in brown and I would write four letters. O I O S, O I O S which simply stands for obedience is our success. That our success won't be dictated or determined on numbers or on outcome or on expectations or desires, but that as believers in Jesus Christ, our success is dictated by our obedience. And I love that this example comes from the shepherds as well. They didn't argue about what they saw or what it meant or what they were going to, they said, let's go, let's see. The angel of the Lord appears, God gives him a clear message and says, you need to get up off your backside and go because I've got a message, and I've got a message I'm going to give you, and not just for you, but I'm going to give you the message that you're going to take as a courier to all people, and the message is this, it's the good news, it's the gospel, it is a glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, for God has come for all mankind. Now, That's an incredible message to give and one might even argue that that you would feel like you need to be prepared to go. I'll be honest, the church hasn't really done a great job of helping us all understand our role and responsibility with the gospel in our own lives. The church has has unintentionally, I think, in many cases taught us that we have to have a healthy grasp of Scripture and apologetics and know how to present what we believe and why we believe what we we believe and what if people ask questions that we don't have answers to and what if what we're reading doesn't make sense but we just have this faith and faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you don't see and and you just, if you're honest with yourself, you just want to say, look, I don't know how it happened but what I know is that I encountered Jesus and my life has changed forever. The shepherds didn't go through this and say, well, we need to enroll in seminary now. We've got to get an education. And I'm not knocking it. Guys, if you know my story, you know I'm, I'm even in seminary right now so that I can continue to grow and get better and learn so that I can be challenged and refreshed and rebuilt because I'm only as good to the church as, as, as I'm allowing God to be in me and working in me. But we don't require a college education to go and be the witness that Christ has called you to be. I love the shepherds' response. They put everything on the line. Their livelihood was at stake. These are shepherds who are given responsibility to care for the flock. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but it's interesting to me that Luke doesn't say that a majority of the shepherds went. And that some stayed back to care for the flock. I don't pretend to know what they would have done with the, the flock, with their, with their employment, with their employers and their jobs. What Luke points out is that they got up and they said, we need to go and we need to experience. We need to see. In other words, they weren't concerned with the outcome. They were responsible for their obedience. They weren't concerned with the outcome, they were responsible for being obedient with what God had given them in that moment. And I question for each one of us this morning, what is God clearly calling us to that we're more concerned with the outcome than we are the obedience? In other words, where do you need to be obedient in your life right now? Where is God impressing upon your heart that you need to systematically set aside everything you think you know and step out in total obedience to obey God and follow him? It's the obedience of the least of these that changes the face of the world. Do you see that? Verse 16. I love how Luke describes how they went. It didn't just say they, they got together and went, they didn't stop off at 7 Eleven and grab some Slurpees and some snacks for the journey and map out their trip. And it says they hurried to the village, the village that they were told. Bethlehem, and they found Mary and Joseph, and I don't think it would have been hard to find Mary and Joseph. You go with this kind of detail, can you imagine, you go into a small-knit community, a small-knit community with a story like this, hey, listen, we're shepherds, and it's going to sound a little quirky, but the Lord appeared to us and said that we're going to find a, a, a woman who was engaged to be married, but wasn't quite married. She's carrying God's son. She actually gave birth. It's actually in a manger somewhere, and it's wrapped in cloth. Do you have any, any idea? This is a small town. They all know. I mean, yes, that way. But so the shepherds, they hurry off to find this in, in Verse 17. After finding the baby lying there in the manger, it says, After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. In other words, after encountering Jesus, after experiencing Christmas, Christ with us, their response was to share the greatest gift the world will ever know with everyone within earshot. Their response was to put their reputations on the line and to live out their experience. Their response was to intentionally leave where they were at and to share with others on their way back to their jobs everything that they had seen. It says the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said about this child, the fulfillment of this prophecy. And it says in verse 18, all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. That's a whole other sermon series. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. The greatest platform that the shepherds took advantage of when communicating Christmas wasn't with a microphone in hand, it wasn't with a captive audience in a church building, it wasn't with lights and the PA audio sound, It, it wasn't in a structured environment for worship, it wasn't when it was expected That's the thing that you'll quickly learn if you don't already know is that a lot of people, even atheists and agnostics and people who don't don't readily acknowledge Jesus as Lord, as the incarnation, as the savior of the world will come to church around the holidays to honor their family or honor their loved ones or to go through the Christmas motions. And so it wasn't the, the, the shepherds who had this captive audience and took advantage of it. It says that as they left... And went back. They told everybody that they came across. What they had seen. In other words, how it affected their life. As well as what they had heard. The testimony of the angel. The greatest platform that you and I have to share Christmas is the way we live our lives. The greatest platform that you and I have to clearly demonstrate Christmas is how we will spend our time, how we will utilize the money, the resources that God has given us, and the things that we will hold on tightly to and celebrate It's so easy at Christmas for us to get swept up in the commercialization of Christmas. And I'm not faulting anybody. We, we, we were involved. We bought presents for others. We bought presents for our children. But what I want us to recognize is that this Christmas... If you're standing around and you're looking at the commercialization of Christmas and with Christmas over now and here we are the last day of the calendar year and you're asking the question, now what? 2017 had all this. What is 2018 going to have? The greatest thing that any of us has to offer to God is our obedience. The greatest message that any of us has to share with others about Christmas is with how we live our lives. And not only with how we live our lives, But Luke is quick to point out that as the shepherds went back, they went back worshiping and praising God for all they had seen and all they had experienced. You see... In other words, when they encountered Jesus, their life was changed forever, and it led to a life of worship or worthyship. Their life had more meaning. It was no longer about uh, cleaning the pens, although that was a part of their responsibilities. It took on different form. It took on different shape. When you and I invite Jesus into the equation of our lives, it doesn't mean that our marriage automatically looks different. It doesn't mean uh, on the surface that our jobs automatically look different. It doesn't necessarily mean that our finances look different. But what does look different is our outlook. What does look different is our perspective. What should be different is how we go about these things, not because of what is, but because of who is. And when we fully surrender our lives to Jesus because of all that he's done, when we see it, when we recognize it, and when we begin to live it out, God can use the most unlikely circumstances from the most unlikely people to give the greatest message that this world will ever know. And so my question this Christmas is, as you're standing around, I say, now what? Now what? What do I do with this? My challenge is to be obedient. My challenge is to be obedient. If you're here this morning, there are going to be those of you, and I'm going to go ahead and assume, though I probably shouldn't, that the vast majority of you here this morning, if asked would raise your hand and say, I have surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. I have made him Lord of my life. I have received him as my Savior. I recognize that he is the Messiah. He is Christ, God with us, and I I have given my life to Jesus. The response then is found in Matthew 22 and in Matthew 28. The response to Christ in us, with us, for us, and through us is to love God with everything in us and to love our neighbors as ourselves, in our actions, in our attitudes, in our deeds. And the responsibility that we have is to take and to share this message in obedience with a dark world that is desperate for the light of Christ. When Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all these things, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is reaffirming his last moments on earth, drawing parallels from his first moments when the angels would say, go, because I've given a great message to all of you, and the angel Ascends into heaven with the army, the heavenly hosts, and they go and they see, they encounter, their life is changed, and they leave there proclaiming Christmas, Christ with us. They went back to their places of employment, but they went back with a different purpose. They went back to their lives, but their lives looked different. Because of their encounter with Jesus. And when you have an encounter with Jesus, it will change your life forever. And when your life is changed forever, you have not only an obligation, but an incredible and a unique opportunity to share that change with others. Look, my kids got some cool presents for Christmas. And one of the things I've noticed is they have been really intentional about sharing with everybody what they got. MJ, my five-year-old, she got a pink ukulele. Yeah, I think she calls her her tutar. And she carries that thing everywhere. She wants to take it in the minivan where all seven of us are crammed in this small confined space and she wants to play Songs from Frozen and The Lion King in this out of tune ukulele, and she shows every dad. Can I take this in the store, Daddy? Can I take this into Fernando's with me, Daddy? Can, can I? She wants to share with everybody because she's so proud of this gift. And you know where I'm going with this, but it's going to be broken next month, <laughs> or she'll be on to the next thing. But we have a gift in Christ that changes and shapes eternity. We're called to have a childlike faith and I just wonder what it would look like if we shared Christ with the same enthusiasm that MJ shares her ukulele, her pink ukulele. This Christmas, my question is now what? What do you do with what you've heard? Father, I thank you for these moments that we've had together. December 31st, 2017. Thank you for the greatest gift that you gave us, and I thank you for the way that you use the least of these and the shepherds. Father, thank you for how you redeem, how you restore, how you equip, how you qualify, how you prepare, and how you send out what is obvious is that our responsibility and our response must be obedience and my prayer is that this christmas each one of us that have heard your word this morning would step out in faith and as an act of obedience to share our faith As we go like the shepherds went back to their jobs, as we go to our jobs, may we be intentional about how we worship and how we share you. Your word says that when we work as unto the Lord, it's as though we're working unto God. It's an act of worship. And As we go back into our families, may we go with changed hearts and minds and lives and perspectives. Help us to see our husbands differently through your eyes. Help us to see our wives through your eyes. Help us to see our family members and our friends through your eyes. God, help us to see ourselves through your eyes that when we go about our business, we will go through our business with surrendered lives and a heart's full of gladness, rejoicing, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth for all mankind. And I pray that you would use each one of us as instruments of your righteousness as we're faithful to share your glory. Amen.